in our lives, Niall Rogers, we've come and touched along the way, right? It's amazing. It, it truly is. So my first question really is, what are you doing now? Before we go start at birth, what's going on now? Because I know you're probably busier now than you've ever been. Which is insane. Um, uh, God, where do I start? I've already cut um, six songs on the upcoming Coldplay album. Um, I've done God knows how many uh, individual singles with different artists. I would say probably, even though it's just the nearing the end of summer, um, I've probably done 30 different tracks with different artists. I, I've been touring. Um, so right now, um, I've circled the gl globe, as far as mileage is concerned, um, three times in the last four months. Um, so like, just for an example, just to show you how crazy it is. So when, the, uh, when we had Coachella, I played with Debbie Harry on Friday. The very next day I was doing a concert in Kona. The very next day I was in Venice. After Venice, we went from Venice to where did we go? Kona to Venice, Venice to, um, uh, I think we be went back to the UK. Oh my back God. Back to London and then back on the continent. I mean, it's insane. Right. It's so do you think, um, I know we were talking about Lifetime Achievement Awards, right? <laughs> and you and I are like, no, 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 we're yeah. not over. And we, we have so much to do. And again, I want to talk first about looking forward because we both are looking forward people. And so the passion you have now is certainly no less than ever before. And I think because you're so much better at what you do and smarter that it's probably even more, right? I, that's the way I feel. Tell yeah. me what is like in your head about now and going forward? It's, um, it, it's in a crazy way, um, even though I'm the oldest I've ever been, obviously, <laughs> <laughs> I'm more active um, on a daily basis than, I've, than in any period in my life, which is incredible because if you look at my history, I mean, I've done thousands of songs, which is, I mean, sometimes it's unbelievable to me. Um, we're working on a scripted television series now about my life. Oh, um, I love it. Which is incredible. I um, love it. That's yeah. so great. Yeah. And um, I'm doing another, you know, whenever the strike is settled, I'm doing a really great film um, with the... Um, I, I can't let the cat out of the bag, but I'm working on a couple of really, oh, good. really good films. Um, uh, I'm touring currently with Duran Duran. Um, so my band, Chic, obviously. Right. Um, touring with Duran Duran. I, when I leave you, 
I'm going out to the Hamptons, flying out to the Hamptons one day to work on a Tina Turner project. Um, and then I leave the very next day to start my tour with Duran Duran. Awesome. So, so it's crazy. Uh, so let's talk about your band. Yes. Um, <laughs> when did your original band begin? So let, when we say my original band, let's talk about Chic. Chic. Because before Chic, I had other good bands. Uh-huh. Um, uh, but so if we talk about Chic, which is really the beginning of my personal recording career where right. I was the composer and the producer right. and in charge, um, we made our first recording in 1976. Wow. We got, we got a first single released in 1977. And in 1978, we put out, which is still to this day, the biggest selling single in the history of Atlantic Records. Aw, freak out. Um, <laughs> so in just a little over a year and a half, I went from being a guy who was sort of living on the subway <laughs> right. to having a few million bucks. How funny. Um, That's yeah. so funny. And. Um, <laughs> Actually, that's when I went out on my own and started to kind of actually make a dollar or two I know. myself. And we met um, probably not long after that, yeah. right? We met very, mm, I, I would say, probably really? right around that time. Yeah. Well, when we, when we went out on our first tour, which was in um, 70, maybe 70, or the end of 77, um, we were wearing Norma Kamali. And at that time, uh, if it wasn't, if I'm not sure if you were branding your um, designs as unisex, but that's how we perceived yep. it. Yeah. Right. And, that, and that's very interesting because, of course, everybody talks about gender now and gender fluid, right. but I, my customer base at that time was 50-50. Right. And um, it was never an intention, but seeing guys wearing yeah. my clothes was just like, oh my God, I love this. This is incredible. And then when it stopped, I actually was sad mm -hmm. and am so happy to see it come back again yeah. and be you know, be free and more spirited. But the way you guys dressed and the interpretations were amazing. It's funny because I've always looked at, I know some fashion designers don't see it like this, but I've always looked at fashion as art. And I've, it's, it was a, it was personal expression. So yeah. You know, I come from the era of, you know, black power movement, the gay rights movement, the women's movement. Mm -hmm. Like, in one of the happiest days of my life was when I met Gloria Steinem <laughs> at, a, at a party. Mm -hmm. you know, like, and it was only a few years ago. Right. I'm like going, you have no idea how many marches that we stood right. security on because we were in the Black Panthers and we were the vanguard right. of the revolution and blah, 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 blah. And she's like, okay, cool. You know, so. It was, it was a time where, um, Nobody observed, everybody participated, right. and everybody 
was welcome to participate and cheer it on. And it was an incredible time that we are so fortunate to have in our history. I think, I think that I would love for some of that human touching and that hugging and caring could replace maybe so much of this mm -hmm. right now. I think this is an incredible time. Don't get me wrong. I think we live in, in a future that's going to be unbelievable. But that was special. Yeah, no, it's, you know, when I look at uh, today's society and I see so many of the things um, being undone, and I'm like, going, wait a minute, were we celebrating progress at the time? Um, and now all of a sudden that progress that we thought we were celebrating mm. is now disappearing. I, yeah. I'm like, you know, my, so we're at your, what I call your new headquarters because it's my first time mm -hmm. here. Um, and this is the street that I grew up on. I was raised just five blocks down the street. And I, I you know, um, yeah, I was a, gr a Greenwich Village kid. I went to PS 41. I played mm -hmm. at, you know, now what's Electric Lady Studios. Well, right. I played at that, that place when it was a nightclub. Right. Um, before Hendrix bought it, I remember Blimpies over on 11th Street and 6th Avenue yeah. where Hendrix used to come and hang out with us as kids. So yeah. how did you, like, what started you on the guitar? Any, is this a family thing? Is this an inspiration from somebody growing up? What was it? It was just the times. So I was uh, raised, I was a classical musician and I first played. So, you know, learning music and art was just part of the standardized curriculum in yeah. America. Yeah. And that didn't mean that because you learned it, you liked it or you could stick with it. Right. But I just happened to right. like music. So even though it was sort of just forced upon us, as was everything, mm -hmm. um, uh, it felt natural to me, so I always wanted to be good at whatever instrument they assigned me, whatever class. What, I was what in. were you assigned? At, is this what school? So at at first, um, so I was born very sickly. So I was the first classroom that I was in was in uh, upstate New York, not that far. But, mm -hmm. you know, if you're a Greenwich Village kid, anything above 14 oh, right, is, is upstate. Is so, <laughs> so it was um, in, in Chappaqua. It was a, oh, right. a, a place called um, uh, Blythdale. Um, I guess it's Blythdale Children's Center or whatever. But when I was younger, they called it a convalescent home. Mm -hmm. And it was there specifically for uh, kids who had uh, lung diseases. I was born with asthma. So at five years old, I remember being in my first classroom. That's when I became self-aware. Mm -hmm. and, um, and at five years old, I learned what the 16-year-olds learned. So when I went to a formal school after that, the first formal school I went to was a Catholic school up in the Bronx. Are you kidding? Um, yeah, I was, so I did first grade at Catholic school in the Bronx, and I can't remember the name of the school in the church because it's since been torn down. Um, then I moved to Los Angeles because my mom was suffering from postpartum depression when she had her second child. Mm. Um, and every day she used to say she was going to kill my little brother. 
when she came home from work. Um, <laughs> she, <laughs> thank God, she never killed him. She never went through with but, that. But you knew that, and those mem those memories are kind of like, you're not going to forget that one. Yeah, no, that was a heavy one. What was the first instrument you so the played? First, first instrument I played was the flute. I played open hole flute, which was hysterical, being an asthmatic. That's and what I, I was wondering. Is he playing a wind instrument in this <laughs> little situation? So a flute. Yeah. And was it in school? In school, yeah. yeah. And I, then, uh, yeah, well, that, then a very diligent teacher, when I got into second or third grade, uh, gave me a closed hole flute which was night and day. I was like, oh, I can do this. Mm -hmm. And then uh, just because of the time. So I stayed on the flute for a while. And then uh, I moved to Los Angeles. And in Los Angeles, they assigned me uh, the B-flat clarinet. So that was a blessing in disguise because then we were in the 60s. And it was all about the hippie movement right. and peace marches and things like right. that. And, you know, I could see me going to a demonstration playing the clarinet. Mm -hmm. Not quite, happening. Quite what kosher. about sax? Did you go straight to sax? I, you know, it's funny. I didn't go to saxophone, and I'll tell you why. Because of the hippie movement and seeing people play guitar and marching right. down the street and having a harmonic instrument yeah. that could yeah. accompany, uh, you know, yeah. anybody singing, I was enamored by the guitar. And when I picked up the guitar and studied it, I saw that the written range was exactly the same as the B-flat clarinet. Yeah, yeah. So the E, the low Sweet. E, three ledger that, lines. Oh, that's great. Yeah, below the staff was yeah. the same. I think learning how to play an instrument in um, when you're younger is really important. I, I actually played clarinet too, ah, okay. um, but I went, I liked sax mm -hmm. and um, and I, I had a moment where I thought I could, I could get into this, but then I thought I don't know if I could handle this life, you know. I'm, <laughs> but I really think learning music, right. learning how to read music, right. is so empowering. And like you said, we were forced to to do all of this. Right. And some people hated certain things but they had some experience and other people said, wait a minute, I'm good at this, I, like I this. can do this. Yeah. And then they become like, that's just the nudge, but then you take it from there. And how great that you were so young and whatever was going on with your health or whatever goes on in our childhoods that are so complicated, um, that just is sort of gives us the character, but then that instrument and drawing for me, I was saved. I could go in a corner and draw, and you could play and be a part of everything. It's amazing, right? It's, it's a, it's a know, blessing. It's, it's, it's so funny that you said you can go in a corner and draw. I, I have, like, no talent for that, like, at all. If you see my signature, it still looks like a child's signature. <laughs> um, even though, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. I can't draw a line. But, but, you, but you're but overwhelm, you're <laughs> overwhelming in so many other areas. We have to talk about um, 
are many interludes. So one is I got a call from you and you said, I have this girl group. I think they're gonna be really, really big. Um, I need to get some clothes, get a look. I can't tell you anything about them. You can't hear their music, but this is what you have to do. And you gave me a whole kind of thing. And you showed up with these three girls. And tell me about that. So that was uh, Destiny's Child. Um, uh, for a while, I had a television show um, that I was hosting on VH1. And this is before VH1 was uh, bought. Um, and so VH1 went out of business, but I, went, but I met a lot of artists who were at the beginning of their careers, right. um, or, or even some big stars. Um, and uh, so when I first uh, met Destiny's Child, um, the father, Matthew Knowles, was a big Chic fan, big Nile Rodgers fan. <laughs> really? Um, That's big, big, that big fan. Amazing, yeah. And um, I remember um, I was doing music direction for a Diana Ross special. And um, Beyonce, at that point, I think they were just lip syncing. They were all about dancing, but you know, I heard her sing and I was like, whoa, this girl can really sing. I, mm. when, we did the show, um, she's, she, I mean, she nailed the performance. It was just so spectacular. Yeah. And here she's on a show with Donna Summer, Mariah Carey, um, Donna, Diana Ross, obviously. And, you know, she's the new kid on the block, yeah. basically. And so that's, that's how we first met. Yeah. Um, uh, and the funny and the rest is history yeah. now she's like one of the biggest yeah. stars in the world and and your kind of magic touch i mean just to to have you be a mentor literally you you not only did all the music stuff but you really gave them the confidence or the, your presence was so incredible I'm not right? sure it was me i think it was more Matthew pumping them up and saying, no, you got to trust this guy. Well, <laughs> but I, soon enough they knew. But I, 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 we were talking uh, before about that, and I, I was remembering um, how there was one girl of the three who was just folding clothes. They were all sitting on the floor, and clothes and stuff all over and she was getting coffee for people and water and fixing things and doing it and in my head I wasn't I still was trying to figure out who was who and what was going on and I thought I'm not sure if she's with them or she's a support <laughs> person for them and of course it was Beyonce she's the nicest and yeah, yeah. and so yeah. no matter you just know that she's the same person, right? Yeah. You just know in your heart, you don't, that doesn't go away. Right. You either are that person or you're right. not, right? You're and not. so That's... it was really, in, in thinking about that story now, I, the, my takeaway was that that girl was so incredible and every time I see her, I think, 
I know that that girl still is, is there. She's you know, in it, that. It's funny. I've been so fortunate in my life to work with people who are gifted, and a lot of these gifted people are the hardest working people. Mm. I mean, you know, Absolutely. Beyonce, Madonna, mm -hmm. like, I mean, incredibly yeah. hard workers. Just, you know, you can ask, you know, them to do something over and over and over again until you get it right. Now, you're not trying to get it right for you. I don't, it's, you know, no. I'm trying to get it right for them. Yeah. And I, I remember, um, you know, just like working on Madonna and just seeing how there was nothing that I would ask Madonna to do, um, you know, when it came to interpreting a song or a lyric. She was like just incredibly believable. That's, yeah. that's what yeah. it is. When Madonna could do a song like Papa Don't Preach and then do Like a Virgin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> like, but it's so authentic and genuine. Right. I mean, even um, Donna Summer, who I got to know really yeah, well I too. Did, I yeah. mean, we know a lot of the same, same people, people from yeah. a different yeah. place, but right. Donna was so, you didn't think that she was that intense, <laughs> but when it came to, you know, do get, be, making, Getting that message, it was the same with Madonna, with every, every one of them, getting that message out there, wow. Yeah. She performed and, you know, just carried it off. Don, Donna was incredible. I, I'm amazed that she and I never did a record together, that the um, only thing we've ever done was live performances together. Mm. And sometimes people don't realize that to a musician to a performer um, that that is just as exciting and yeah. just just as um, fulfilling as a recorded performance because a recorded performance mm. is something that you can work on and you can fix and you can do whatever mm. but to play live and smoke and and it's funny you know with Donna I remember going to see one of what would have been close to her last show and it was, took place only a couple of Mm -hmm. Avenues over from here, and it was in that district um, in the '50s where they have like the strip clubs yeah, on yeah, the West yeah. Side Highway, and uh, and I was begging her to sing "Love to Love You, Baby," and she had dropped it from her set, and I said, "You don't understand that what was a seismic shift in my musical course." was I was a jazz snob. Like, so I went from classical to jazz, became a total snob, like, you know, mm -hmm. was only into like the hippest of the hip. And my girlfriend was um, uh, a waitress at one of the cool jazz clubs over on Bleecker and um, uh, Bleecker and like around 10th Street. Yeah, yeah. And it was a place called, um, oh God, I forget the name of it, but anyway, she and I went to one of these pop-up discos that was on 8th Street and Broadway, which was formerly a Steak and Brew. Steak and Brew had closed that particular mm -hmm. operation and then somebody just moved in and made a disco. Yeah. And we walked in and the first song I heard was Love to Love You Baby and it blew me away. Yeah. It was just genius. Yeah. And then the second song was The Village People's San Francisco. Right. And the third song was Eddie Kendrick's Girl You Need to Change Your Mind. Oh my God. And yeah. if you think about it, 
all of these songs were politically and socially relevant. Powerful, powerful. Incredible. Powerful. And that's why people were moved by music in a way that's a little different now, but they, they were carried away by not only the sound of it and the, the hypnotic kind of trance that you could get into it, but there was, there was something else, there was another layer. Substance. Yeah, substance. There was, there was spiritual yeah. and political substance, and we were all a part of this movement that brought us together. Yeah. It didn't separate no. us. No. It was interesting that that marketing uh, of music started to separate people because, you know, it was this category, that category, mm -hmm. category, this category. And I know, I mean, I got burned by the music business because um, in the summer of 79, they had this event, Disco Sucks, mm -hmm. which was interesting to me because we had, made people, <laughs> we, had, we had made the record industry tens if not hundreds right, of millions right. of dollars in just two and a half years right and now all of a sudden i was persona non grata it, it was crazy it was it like was well so crazy well, for I'm, me for me i just want to put, put a period yeah. on the end of this thank god i had signed my contract with diana ross because had the contract not been signed, she would have probably run away from us, or yeah. at least Barry Gordy would have yeah. convinced her yeah. to run away. But in fact, we had a signed deal, yeah. and I wound up doing the biggest record of her life. Yeah, which is? Diana, Yeah, which is upside down, and yeah. I'm coming the out. The best, though, actually the best. To me, the best. It, well, it was they, part of the zeitgeist. Yeah. It was, once again, it was not only music to make you feel good, but it was music with a message. Yeah. I wrote about her life. That album mm. is a documentary seen through the eyes of me and my former partner, yeah. Bernard Edwards, but yeah. just put in music. Yeah. And um, I also did lots of things for Diana. And, and uh, it also was an interesting time um, for the way they decided what they were going to wear, just like you guys. Yeah. You picked it yourself. You didn't have stylists who no. were creating a look for right. you. Could you imagine anybody that would want to create a look for you? Like you knew what you wanted. Find me this or right. show me what I can get. Like this feeling, this is what I want. And it was so great to hear what people really wanted, what they felt, how they wanted to represent themselves. But she, again, authentic. Yeah. Authentic, authentic, the sound, like a new sound that just was so powerful. And her look, her persona was connected. Like the music and the fashion part of it, all of it was one. It was never separate. It wasn't some thing that came in that wasn't part of the authentic right. thread. So, you, you know, um, I've done, I'm, I'm sort of a closet musicologist. And, um, uh, and I looked this up so I wouldn't say this without having really good backup. You know that I was the first person that ever wrote a lyric um, that name-checked fashion designers. So I did Sister Sledge's album, We Are Family, 
And we broke Sister Sledge with a song called He's the Greatest Dancer. And one of the lyrics is Halston, Gucci, Fiorucci. He looks like a still. That man is dressed to kill. Now, if you go and buy a pop album, name that's, checking that's is, all it all, is. It's all name checking. That's all it is. <laughs> but you're right. That's right. I it was the very that. first time. I remember that. I mean, when's your birthday? What's your birthday? September 19th. Coming soon. Coming soon. Ouch. Uh-uh. I'm 78. Tell me I'm wow. not older than you are. I am older wow. than you are. I'm going to be 71 and I'm freaking out oh, about that. Oh, you're a baby. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I. You look amazing. You're I, 78. I, well, look at you. I mean, oh, I, I feel as though... There's so much information that we have, right? We have mm -hmm. all of this information, and we know when we see something new, if it's real or not, because right. we were there probably right. to right. see not as real as the first time, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and there's something really special about that and the opportunity to be at this point in your life and being productive is really extraordinary, right? So what do you think it is about you that is making this time in your life? And certainly if you tell me 71 is old, that won't <laughs> fly here. But what do you think? What, what are you thinking in your head? What's your motivation? Um, you know, I... Um I feel like I chronicle life. I remember when I was a young activist and uh, I had dinner with Harry Belafonte and he mm. said that artists are the gatekeepers of truth. And I was like blown away. I was like, wow. Yeah, I never even thought about yeah. it in that sense. But that's what I do when I write a song. Uh, or I work on any kind of project, I'm trying to look at what's going on around me and be a reflection Capture. of that. Capture, yeah. Um, you know, when I, when I was working on, so I'm not name dropping, but this, I would be disingenuous if I didn't talk about some of the greatest moments of my life, mm -hmm. some of the greatest projects. So I did Bowie's biggest album, I did Let's Dance. Yes, and you did. When I, when I was doing that, um, I remember the fact that we were, we were really talking about the things that we see in this world. Mm -hmm. like David was very poetic, and he could write about things in an abstract way. I couldn't really do that. I, I had double entendre in my lyrics mm -hmm. to an extent, but I was really giving you the code. All you had to do was be smart enough mm -hmm. to see the code. Yeah. It, yeah. But so I knew that my first appeal had to be primal. Right? Yeah. You had to just like it and dance and and even my own mother sings the it's wrong still, lyrics. But it's still it's still <laughs> It is the thing that you, you, the energy you get first in music, and mm -hmm. then, right. I mean, then you decipher yeah. it. And, and, and I too did things for David Bowie, and it's the same that abstract vision that's very exciting, right? right. It, it's very appealing. 
the the range of people that you've worked with. So here's my question coming through my Royal Albert Hall <laughs> experience. So not too long ago, I, I actually met Jeff Beck and Led Zeppelin through a friend of mine in London. In the 60s, I stayed at her house. And um, the manager, famous manager of Led Zeppelin was always there. Mm -hmm. and, um, and Jeff was there too. So I got to know, like, I just became friends. Right. And, um, and Jeff Beck to me was just a really special guy. His yeah. temperament, his, just his passion for guitar. His and interpretation. I, yeah. And I yeah. love guitar. Yeah. I love, I could sit and listen to everything you've done, to every guitar player. I'm passionately in love with it. So Jeff dies, yeah. and I am just, it's sort of history, everything. It's just so profound because I realize it's not just Jeff. I'm going to go to Albert Hall. Eric Clapton and a whole bunch of other yeah. people are going to be there. It's going to be a celebration of the guitar, but it's also maybe the end of this era. Right. And while it's not the end of your era, which is fascinating, right? So I see this painting, this incredible painting. I don't see any other paintings. And the hallways are rushing people, people, people. This red just pops out, and it's you. It's the most gorgeous <laughs> painting. I take my phone, and my, like my guy is saying, come on. And I'm like, no. I take the picture, and I said, I've got to see Niall. This is it. This is like, this is not a coincidence, right? Mm -hmm. This is really important. And I see the show, and I see all of these people, and clearly you've worked with every one of right. them. So tell me about, and this is selfish because I'm a guitar lover, of all the different guitarists, tell me the different experiences that you had with each of them. Like, not everyone, okay. but pick the... Let's pick talk the, about Jeff. So, so this was interesting. Um, the wonderful thing about my career is that, like almost every business, every business fails. So most of my productions fail, but the ones that are successful usually wind up being the biggest of that artist's life. So I'm pretty sure the last time Jeff Beck won a Grammy was the album that I did, which was called Flash. Yes. And um, because I was a fan of the Jeff Beck group, it was my secret plan to get the Jeff Beck group back together. So I was trying to get him yeah. and Rod Stewart yeah. back together. Yeah. And, you know, well, and I, I don't know how that was going to go. I know, but <laughs> I was trying. You see, remember, I'm a fan. So I'm, right. like, I'm Me like, too. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't thinking about personality right, conflict right. or anything like that or the thing that I know that bands sort of always have. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but that was my wish. That was my dream. So I took the job to try and manipulate, that. To manipulate yeah. Rod Stewart and Jeff Beck back together. Um, we got a Grammy for people get ready, yeah. but that was it. They never did anything. Yeah, and you know, he, uh, 
he strangely did not seek fame. It's almost like he walked away from it or hid from it. Yeah. And he was always very shy, but incredibly bold Outspoken. behind the guitar, right? Yeah. I mean, oh, he, yeah. he just blew it, right? Yeah. But he, um, he stood behind his beliefs. And of course, Rod Stewart is amazing and he's right. talented, but you could not find two people that are <laughs> right. more different. Polar Rod Stewart opposites. would come into the store. He always had a blonde girlfriend right, of course, and, yeah. and long-term ones. Yeah, yeah. And he would sit on the floor and um, buy frocks for them and <laughs> tell me about the frocks. And I thought, you know, <laughs> he he just is this character, right? Yeah, he is. And and there he is. And he was really lovely on the on the sort of that great performance at uh, Albert Hall. And did you do stuff with Eric Clapton? Of course. So tell sure. which what did I yeah, mean? So I think you I, did more than one thing with him, right? Um, so well, I I did an album with yeah. Eric, and uh, and also I did the the uh, the Ginger Baker tribute. Oh my God! Um, uh, so quite similar. So it happened just a few months before right, the right. Jeff Beck. Uh, but anyway, um, yeah, I did an album with Eric, uh, which was a tribute to um, Jimi Hendrix called "Stone Free." Mm -hmm. And um, whew, wow, you're really touching on some heavy stuff here because when I did that album, Eric had just lost his son. Mm. Um, his son walked out the window yeah. of um, what's very the, tall building. Yeah, what's the tall very building on fifty? Floor. Yeah, fifty yeah, seventh, I think. Yeah, um, and and he was heartbroken, and he was trying to pull himself together, um, and he was sober, and I was a raging alcoholic and drug addict at the time, and. Um, the fact that he continued to work with me and we completed the album and the album went gold, um, which in, in my world, it's funny. It sounds, and honestly, I don't mean this, Norma, as egotistical or whatever. I mean, because the truth is, is that I believe that successful records um, it's not just a matter of hard work and great artistic interpretation and love and all that, but I think a lot of it just has to do with luck and the team because once we turn in the record, it's out of our hands, yeah. right? It's like now it's up to the record company yeah. to promote and get everything done. So um, I was used to platinum and multiple platinum records or diamond, you know, you know, Madonna and these massive, massive right. records. So getting a gold record with Clapton for me was almost like going backwards at the time. And I felt like I let him down. Um, but what was really interesting is that shortly after he and I worked together, I had a very bad night down in Miami Beach. And, um, and at that moment I knew that I had to get sober or I would die. Um, it's amazing that today you and I are together on what is my 28th anniversary. I have not had a drink 
Oh my. Or drugs since then. Congratulations. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Congratulations. It's amazing that our generation, my generation, which is even older than your generation, are um, still alive I know. for all the testing and trying things that had never been tried before and pushing the envelope yeah. because the consequences were unknown. Yeah. I mean, it's really incredible between the early 70s and then through studio and yeah. all of that, that just the intensity um, increased and increased. It, it, it definitely is shocking to, did you ever, I just had the thought, did you ever work with Etta James? No, but it's, it's funny that um, uh, one of the biggest influences, uh, let me finish mm -hmm. the Eric oh, story, okay. just because yeah. just this is very important. Right. Um, so I remember people all around me trying to get me sober or whatever. I was really bad. Mm -hmm. And all I could remember um, when I sort of finally saw the light of day was Eric Clapton's silence was the loudest voice I ever heard. He really? never once complained. Really? He never once said anything to me really? about Nile. You know, you, you're, you're, you know, you're living life on the edge. He never right. once said anything. And I remember the first AA meeting I went to, he happened to be the guy who was leading the meeting. And I was like, whoa. That's and right. I just went to him and I thanked him for saying nothing. <laughs> Well, I mean, he knew. He, he knew, knew I couldn't hear him. He knew that he knew I no, hear you him. could say whatever you want. Right. And it's not going to, nothing's going to work with that. Yeah, so back to Etta James. So I never worked with um, Etta as um, uh, a one-on-one -on -one kind of relationship, a concert or anything like that. But I used to be in the Apollo Theater house band. And I remember um, just a huge amount of stars that came through the Apollo while I was, um, you know, while I had that job. Mm -hmm. That was my second, um, uh, how do I say it? My second sort of grown up adult kind of job. Yeah, my yeah. first job was with Sesame Street. Right. Oh my God. Yeah. Unbelievable. I am so looking forward to this series. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, I was with Sesame Street, and I did Sesame Street for probably about a year. And I remember the woman who was the star at that time was named Loretta Long. She played a character called Susan. And Susan on Sesame Street, her husband was a manager at the Apollo Theater. And Carmine... Um, no, not Carmine, uh, sorry, Carlos Alomar um, had left the Apollo house band to go join the Young Americans to join Bowie. So they had an opening. And he asked his wife, he says, you know, do you happen to know any guitar players? She said, well, we have this kid. She said, he's a little weird. <laughs> <laughs> he's got the weirdest hair in the world. At that time, I had a big blown out right. afro and I used a vegetable dye to make it sort of have a green hue. Um, so it had a green, if you, the light hit me just right, right you go, oh shit, his mm. afro is green, but you couldn't tell. Normally right. it looked jet black. Um, 
So she said, yeah, we have this kid. He's a little weird, but man, he's the best music right, reader right. you've ever seen. And um, so, you know, everybody from Etta to Aretha to oh Screaming God. Jay Hawkins yeah. to all the, the doo-wop bands that were still happening, yeah. um, everybody who had one hit, one hit wonders, uh, Betty Wright, Clean Up Woman, right. I remember, you know, she was on my first, I think probably my first Apollo gig. The really? First, yeah. See, so, I, I just love that music. I, I, so I became friends with Etta James because I did a fashion show. Right. And I picked all this music. And Do I her, make myself clear and all the, that stuff? All, all of this wide span of her music, not knowing it's all this one person. Right. So I call her. Right. I just like, I, I need to know this woman. I get her manager and I said, I'm having a fashion show. And it turns out that every song from like the beginning <laughs> right. is Etta James. Right. And he said, she's doing a concert, but come meet us and at um, Irving Plaza. Right. Wow. And we started a relationship that was just this great friendship. And I thought, for some reason, I thought that you'd done something with her. But that, those sounds are just right. Incredible. Yeah. No, I I didn't I, I didn't do a production or anything like that. But I did play the Apollo. Oh my and, God! And that, she that experience. Through. That was amazing. That yeah. was. Uh, probably the, I mean, talk about trial by fire. Mm. Wow. I've, I've seen every super positive and every super negative situation you could see at the Apollo, um, honestly. Um, well, I, I mean, I it's sort it of like great training for you. Yeah. And just that history is so part of your memory bank that how do you, it's just in you. It's like all taking everything and mixing it all together and creating all these things you create. I mean, every experience. What was the most, I'm not gonna include awards, but what was the most exhilarating performance for you? You've had many, but if you have to pick one where you were sort of transported. Yeah, um, this is a weird one because it's got super positive side to it and a super negative side. So uh, when Chic, when we put out this song, Good Times, um, we had just put it out. I mean, and we didn't realize that it would jump to the top, top of the charts so fast that we actually hadn't added it to our set yet because we were still playing the old show. Oh my God, yeah. And so, um, at that time, uh, you know, music, people used to go to concerts to hear new music. So it, it's not like now, <laughs> not now, now you play a new song, everybody goes like, to the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> but in those days, people went to shows to hear new music. So we thought we would play um, everything from the old set and we didn't add the new song because we didn't think that it would be known that fast mm -hmm. so we just figured well when we finally finish this tour we'll add it right. and you know what have you and anyway so we were opening for Marvin Gaye 
and we were playing San Diego Padre Stadium. And um, we finished with the freak. So we go, ah, freak out, Mm -hmm. boom, the freak say she, thank you. (laughs) So the crowd is going crazy. Um, We left the stage and they all started, the the whole place, 70,000 people or so, started doing this. And Marvin Gaye uh, thought it was an earthquake. And I'm only telling this story the way that Rick James told it to me. Because I was in my dressing room, of course. So I'm in my dressing room. And Rick James says, (laughs) that Marvin says, man, get under a desk or something. Come on, man, it's an earthquake. And Rick is looking at him going, what are you talking about? He says, don't you feel it? The whole place is shaking. And Rick says, man, that's just your opening group. That's just chic. And so Marvin Gaye goes, who's chic? He says, that's your opening act. He said, that's the people just screaming for them. He said, don't worry, it's it's cool, it's no earthquake. So now we were really in the grip of drugs and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So now we're in the the dressing room and we're celebrating, we're snorting coke and Mm -hmm. partying and having a great time. And, um, And so the police knock on our door and we think, oh my God, they're oh coming my God. to arrest us. They're now begging us to come out and quell the crowd Stop. because they said there's going to be a riot. You guys, Stop. yeah, they said you guys are going to have I to do love an it. encore. I love it. And we oh said we can't God. do an encore. One, we don't know anything else. <laughs> um, and at that time, Luther Vandross was in our band. He was, you know, part Stop. of our, yeah, Luther was our vocal. Get out. Yeah, he was our vocal no. contractor. So we had let Luther go back to L.A. Because in L.A. <laughs> in those days, you could rent really fantastic cars. Oh, my And so God. he rented some great car and we rented great cars. And we were going to drive back and let the band go on the bus. So Luther had already split. So now our background vocalists are gone. And... You know, we're an authentic band. We don't have any backing tracks. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. You know, what you see on stage is what's generating right. anything you hear. So Luther had taken off and we're going like, well, we can't play now because half of our band is gone. And so they said, look, you got to do something because there's going to be people going to get hurt. So we get in the golf cart, which they use to have the pitchers the yeah. relief pitchers coming yeah. from the bullpen. Yeah. Right. So all we do is ride around in a circle and wave to the crowd because we couldn't, we couldn't oh think of it. Oh, my God. So we're, we're pulling Wild. a queen thing. Like we're, Wild. You know. How amazing. So we go back to our dressing room after riding around. We do a couple of revolutions. We go back. This is still going no. on. The cops come and get no. us and say, you got to do it again. And we go back out and we do it again. And I don't think we get on stage because we were smart enough not to do that because Marvin's band and everybody had already gone already, out on stage. Yeah. So um, this was Marvin uh, after his huge comeback. This was him now, you know, he's, he's come back from Amsterdam. Yeah, he's yeah, like yeah. this new Marvin yeah, Gaye. Yeah. And, um, and we were honored to be playing for mm-hmm. Marvin Gaye to be opening for him. But uh, we thought that that experience was so traumatic because we had to go back out and do, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure he didn't get that. Uh, yeah. But yeah. Uh, so anyway, 
we, we finally get to LA and Rick James tells us this story about the earthquake and Marvin telling me, man, I wonder, that me you crazy. So um, Rick tells us the story because we're having an after party at, um, uh, at, our, at our hotel and there's a swimming pool on the roof of the hotel and it's, you know, so we're partying up like crazy. And so I think that Marvin Gaye must hate us. So I never find out I never ever meet Marvin Gaye. No. I never find out anything. And then, you know, of course, not long after that, his father kills him. Um, so I <laughs> lived the rest of my life until about, maybe only about five or six years ago, um, thinking that Marvin Gaye hates us. Mm -hmm. And I hear his final interview that he does with a DJ in Europe somewhere. And the DJ is asking him about how does he feel about disco music. And he says he doesn't really like it that much because it seems very repetitive to him. He said, but you know, there is one disco group that I really have an incredible, incredible amount of respect for. That's so cool. And he says, that's it's so cool. that group chic. Yeah, that's so cool. <laughs> and you know, first of all, interjecting Rick James in this conversation is like a whole other flavor here. But, um, but I, you know, it's interesting because you are so fluid in feeling sounds from any time. And just, it's not that you're adapting, you're inventing even in that new era. And Here's an example, and Marvin Gaye, oh my God, I could, I could hear some of that acapella stuff uh, for three days in a row, nonstop, yeah. right? This is like this genius sound. But he was facing the future and saw it as a wall. Right. You face the future and you see it as an opportunity I, yeah. and it, as like an adventure. And that is such a great testament to your talent and the, the un, un, it's unending creativity and how fortunate that you have this creative life that you take advantage of and share with everybody. It's just, it's, it, it's a blessing for all of us to have you involved in all of these musicians and singers lives but also having your sound and your spirit as part of uh, of uh, this generation and so many yeah i you know it's interesting that i've had um hit records in every decade um that you know since i became a professional so since 1977, 76, 77, mm -hmm. whatever you want to look at the starting line for Chic. Um, uh, ever since then, uh, so it's like almost 50 years now, um, I've had hit records and big ones. Like, so. No, like, like, like big, like big. Hit records. This <laughs> is know, not, and, and there are. <laughs> And there are these one-hit wonders that, you know, it, it's it just shows you that there has to be there has to be talent, there has to be this imagination, innovation that goes along with all of us, and also understanding what's going on in the world. 
yeah. to relate to it. You know, it, you, you hit the nail on the head when you said that. I always look towards the future. Like I see people now being um, very negative about um, generative AI and, um, and Dolby Atmos and things like that. And I go to myself, well, wait a minute, guys, we're artists. It's just another color on our palette. We just that's just another color to paint with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So some people may look at it as a, a shortcut to something that I said. But think about when synthesizers were invented. Think about when sequences and drum machines mm -hmm. were invented. Um, I was very negative about a drum machine until I heard this song called "Pass the Duchy," and I went, "Whoa!" They said, "Yeah, that's called dancehall reggae." And I said, well, how do they do that? What's the difference between dancehall reggae and right. reggae? Well, dancehall reggae, they use drum machines and electronic stuff. So I went out and I bought a drum machine and I wrote Carly Simon's song, Why? Yeah, and then you create from that. I, yeah. I agree. I think AI um, is another opportunity. Right. And if you're afraid of it, you run away. But, you, but full immersion is everything. In fact, I... I'm an AI, a ChatGPT freak, <laughs> and I, of course, could ask you a million questions just because it's easy for me with you. And then I thought, I, I wrote, um, I'm interviewing Nile Rogers, the famous producer and guitarist for a podcast today. Please advise on the most deep, meaningful questions to help tell the story and scope of his career. That's called a prompt. And um, so here are some of the questions. You can answer anyone that you feel. Okay. Niall, your career spans several decades and you've worked with some of the biggest names in the music industry. Looking back, what would you say has been the most significant moment or turning point in your career and how did it shape your trajectory? Getting my first record deal. My first record deal was a singles deal. Um, we got $3,500 to make one song, well, two songs, an A-side and a B-side. And we wrote a song called Dance, 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 Yowzy, Yowzy, Yowzy. Oh and the B-side was called Sao Paulo. Um, and um, when we go back and you think about, you know, artists being the gatekeepers of truth, I, I loved um, Brazilian music. I always loved samba and bossa nova. And... I wanted to write a song that sort of paid tribute to Brazil. So I, the B-side was Sao Paulo. And to me, I look at that city the same way I view New York. Typically, everybody thinks of Rio when they think of mm -hmm. Brazil. And I'm saying, wait a minute, no, but there's the, one of the largest cities in the world. And um, in the summertime in New York, especially when I was a kid, living right down the street. Mm -hmm. um, we had our own version of summertime and, you know, and water sports, which was opening the fire hydrant, right. or even <laughs> the death-defying swimming in the Hudson or which the East is, River, which was... Can in, you imagine? Can you believe yes, that I we know. used to do that? It was I like... Know. <laughs> I know, I like, disgusting. That was but disgusting. disgusting. Your, your clothes uh, were like soiled. It from was the basically top. a toilet bowl. Yeah, it was. That a, was. It was. <laughs> it was. And, but as kids, you go, let's go. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we jump right off the pier and, you know, you could, you could stab yourself on a pilot. It, it was disgusting. It was horrible. 
Okay. As a producer, you have an incredible ability to bring out the best in artists and create timeless hits. Can you share a particular project or collaboration that challenged you creatively and pushed you to explore new territories? Whew. New territory. Well, it was interesting that it wasn't necessarily new territory for me, but it was new territory for David Bowie. And mm. what happened was I met him only a few blocks away from here um, when Arthur opened up uh, an after-hours club. What was that called? Oh, man. Uh, uh, anyway, it's an after-hours club that opened up right down the block from here. And I walked in there. Uh, I was hanging out with Billy Idol. And I walked in, and I happened to see David Bowie sitting all by himself at the back of the room sitting at the bar and he was drinking orange juice. I walked over to him and I happened to notice him. So this was, you know, 1981 or something mm -hmm. like that. And this was the era of the club kid and everybody, you know, had yeah. fabulous clothing. Yeah. And, you know, you go into a club and you make a big statement. Yeah. David, however, was wearing just the regular business suit. And I was like, wow, that's weird because that's not David Bowie. To me, David Bowie would be the ultimate club kid. Right. <laughs> but he wasn't a club kid at all. He was like, mm -hmm. uh, looked like a businessman. So I went over and I started talking to him. And all we did was talk about jazz. And that was my passion and my love. And as, you know, as I grew up here in Greenwich Village, mm -hmm. you know, my parents were so totally into the Village Gate and mm -hmm. the Vanguard and you know, and Sweet Basil and all the cool clubs. Yep. And that's what, what I did. I hung out in all those kind of places and even played at, uh, you know, boomers and slugs and performed at all these joints. So when I started talking to David, it was amazing that all he and I talked about was jazz. And then when he finally successfully contacted me, he told me that he wanted to do, he wanted me to do a hit album for him not a hit song mm. a hit album wow and i was Ambitious. blown away because yeah. i was thinking to myself oh so david bowie doing a pop album is an art project <laughs> so i said okay great that's what i'm gonna do i'm gonna do really catchy pop yeah. music with david but we're still gonna have our roots yeah in art and substance and i remember david saying to me when I did this really poppy kind of arrangement on a song, he said something to me I'll never forget. He said, you know, Niall, if you come from art, you'll always be associated with art. Mm -hmm. So doing a pop song, doing pop music is not weird to me. Mm -hmm. He said, there's no such thing. Like right. it's just, it's just expression. Yeah, so I was like, okay, cool. It's a, that's a great story. Um, in addition to your musical achievements, you have been an advocate for various causes and used your platform to bring attention to social issues. How important is it for artists to use their voice for positive change, and how do you balance your artistic pursuits with your activism? Good question. Huh. Um, so it's, it's really interesting because I was in what, you know, the world has sort of deemed uh, a very extremist organization and probably one of the most, you know, 
written about revolutionary type of organizations, the Black Panther Party. As a matter of fact, I was a subsection leader in the Black Panther Party. Really? Yeah. But I was in a branch, uh, the Harlem branch, but I was in a section called the Lower Manhattan Panthers. Everybody in my section was from 23rd Street and below. Damn, really? So they were all hippies. <laughs> hippies. Every, like, and almost everybody in my section was biracial. And as a matter of fact, my section leader was white. Chill Panthers. Yeah, we were totally <laughs> chill. We were cool. We were super intellectuals. Wow. And we made more money um, for the Harlem branch because we used to sell the Panther newspaper, which went for a quarter. And the Black Panther Party, they, they had it designed very well mm -hmm. when it came to just, you know, coming up with a concept that was good for the organization, but also good for the individual. Mm -hmm. So each paper we sold, we got to keep a nickel and only ah. turn in 20 cents. Uh -huh. So Very everybody was interested in buying papers from us because we're we near were NYU, yeah. we're near um, uh, Alternate U, we're near wow. all these cool schools. We're and you see the way the an organized for good, literally. Oh yeah, we started. An organized, forceful group, but for good, with a plan that has intention for everyone, really can do good things. Well, we started the Breakfast for Children program, um, which J. Edgar Hoover deemed as the most um, dangerous program in America or something like that. Mm -hmm. And the next thing you know, after the Panthers sort of, you know, were disbanded and dismantled and everything dis, mm -hmm. um, food for children in schools became a normal <laughs> a normal thing. No, it just became, it, but it, you know, to send your kid to school and he gets breakfast yeah. was a normal thing. And, and there are revolutions going on now with the way, the way children need to be taught, which was a whole topic for me. But um, the good thing about AI is education is going to be strong for yeah. everybody on every level. That's and that's the beauty of AI, if you really want to know. Then, um, okay, last question. Okay. <laughs> Finally, this is a really good question. I am so jealous of AI, in a way. What does music mean to you personally? How has it shaped your life and provided a means of expression? And what do you hope your musical legacy will be? I love that. Wow. Um, I sort of already have a feeling that it'll be the song We Are Family that I wrote for Sister Sledge. Um, I have a feeling that after I am long gone, people not only in America, but around the world, as I've seen, uh, will still sing the song We Are Family, no matter what country I go to, no matter what language mm -hmm. they speak, they, they sing that song. They sing awe, freak out. They sing We Are Family. They sing Everybody Dance. Mm. They, they sing Upside Down. We play Upside Down. People go crazy. As a matter of fact, I met um, with the King of England now, but when he was Prince a number of times because I played for the Prince's Trust. And, um, and, and I remember him saying something to the effect of, we're not a fellow. Yeah. 
I have to uh, familiarize myself with your music because I don't think I know any of it. <laughs> right. I said, I said, no, your Royal Highness, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure you do. You just don't know I did it. <laughs> and then when he, when they were having the king's coronation, they they had his playlist on Spotify. Stop. And his number right. three favorite of song of all time was Diana Ross. Of course. <laughs> it was upside down. Of course. <laughs> it was like that's so funny. That really is. I mean, I I'm I'm thinking that if you just took all of your music, you could do an opera basically about <laughs> life, you know? I mean you could do a whole storyline. Oh, yeah around that i'm sure it'll be in in the this docu-series but it just really is so telling of the decades that we've experienced and also of the culture and the energy of each time and we're also lucky that you are productive and continuing to be inventive and a genius and I'm so glad we're friends and that we we keep touching and the universe just does bang together together. I know. And so I'm really happy and I'm so thrilled that you're doing this with me. Oh, you have no idea. It's my honor. Um, it's like we've come full circle. We started out um, wearing Kamali. I remember. I had my own sense of fashion just because of the whole hippie thing and, you know, um, and my girlfriend at the time had just graduated from FIT, from Fashion Institute of Technology, and this is when the New York designers were starting to become yeah. a thing, yeah. right? So it was like I met, you know, Tommy Hilfiger and Calvin Klein and, uh, and of course, Halston and yourself and Jane Barnes and all these names mm -hmm. that were like, like whoa, right, they right. were on the international scene. Yeah. Um, and, and I remember seeing Jane Barnes, uh, seeing her fabrics and stuff, and I was like, oh man, this is like, almost like the American version of Chanel or something like mm -hmm. this, like, man, you know, we don't really see stuff like this. Yeah. And then I remember, you know, parachuting, you know, and all this stuff. So. You know, when we started and we started wearing Kamali because it was unisex to us, it was like it looked cool on the guys and it looked cool on the girls. And then we could mix it and match it. Yeah. But, you know, at that time we would wear Fendi and, you know, all the girls would wear Fendi. But we, you know, somehow we could put all this stuff together and, and, and it would complete the, the artistic puzzle. Mm. Because I remember reading something by a very famous jazz musician, I can't remember who it was, but they, a journalist asked him, um, why did he always dress the way he dressed? And he said, um, before they hear you, they see, see you. you. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely true. Even those few minutes where you yeah. walk out on stage and you're getting ready to dress but up. But you have that, you have that understanding um, just, intuitively be and also when you live through the early 70s that's the way right. you have to be if you look like anybody else or try to look right. like anybody else doesn't work you're like you're an idiot like what to go home <laughs> like what are you doing right. it you would never do that and so that instinct 
I think is instilled and you with your work can see the color, can see the shape, can see what that energy looks like and sounds like at the same time. So great. Give me a big hug. <laughs> <laughs>